Welcome to the CTO Connection Podcast. I'm Peter Bell, and every couple of weeks, I'll be sharing interviews with top engineering leaders. Today, I'm speaking with Randy Schaup, who's an engineering leader who seems to have run engineering teams pretty much everywhere in the Bay Area. Randy, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Thanks for having me, Peter. So as usual, I'd love to, to dive into a little bit of the backstory. I know you went to Stanford University, and then you, you started off at Oracle. Uh, and it seems like for the first part of your career, you were primarily an individual contributor and architect. Yeah, so um, I tried to stay out of the management side for the vast majority of my career, thinking that I didn't know anything about it and wouldn't be good at it. So yeah, I was a, I was an individual contributor, software engineer at Oracle, and also an individual contributor at a company called Tumbleweed. And then I went to eBay, where I worked as a chief engineer and architect, again, mostly as, a, just, uh, as an individual contributor. So probably the first 20 years of my 30 years uh, have been all uh, individual contributorship. So, so what went wrong at eBay? How did you suddenly find yourself as a pointy head boss? What, what uh, prompted that transition? Yeah, that was great. So at eBay, I worked on um, eBay's search engine. So eBay had a, a bunch of really unique um, search problems needing to do things in real time, which is sort of normal now, but was really uh, uncommon in 2004. We were sort of, I, I was part of a team that sort of did the first real-time search engine uh, at scale. And uh, I was an individual contributor helping to architect that uh, that solution and then all the other aspects of search around that. So I ended up being an individual contributor, but like influencing larger and larger organizations, if that makes any sense. So I probably at the, you know, at the height of it, that were probably 500 people in the organization for which I was the kind of the technical lead. And we had built this amazing search engine, real-time search engine for maybe seven or eight years. And it was clear that the next step that we needed to do, we needed to rewrite it. And the details aren't super important, happy to talk about it. But we realized over time, if we wanted to add machine learned ranking, if we wanted to do really modern search engine related things, the only way we were going to do it is by rewriting the guts. And so I made this proposal to essentially the, you know, the executive team at eBay saying, hey, here are all the things that we want to be able to do, here's how we're going to be able to do it. And the only way that we can do it is to, you know, build like an entirely new version two. And so then they, then they accepted my proposal and they were like, well, okay, of course you're going to lead it. Aren't you like, uh, I guess so. Um, so that's how I, that's how I joined the dark side. So, um, it started with four or five of us, all individual contributors, all very senior, just really, really great group of people. And then it grew to, you know, 15 and 20 and 30 and 50. Um, so the, by, the, by the time I left, um, there were 50 people in that organization that I had inadvertently <laughs> founded. Um, so yeah, that was my, that was my uh, flip. And the, the thing that I learned, um, which I still come back to, is all those skills that you apply as an individual contributor to influence people, those are exactly how you should manage. So uh, this idea that I'll openly say I had was, oh, management, like, this is totally wrong, by the way, management tells people what to do. All I got to do is like influence. Well, it turns out that as a manager, if somebody reports to me or, you know, or a whole organization reports to me, the absolute best way to influence, to have motivate the team to do the thing that we need to do is to motivate them, not to tell them what to do. 
Um, so without intending to, I spent 20 years training for a modern style of management, if that makes any sense. Because, you know, of those 500 people that I mentioned eBay, like exactly zero of them reported to me. So I couldn't tell anybody what to do, but I had lots of ideas and lots of influence and just, you know, putting the right people together and uh, trying to show people or, you know, um, get feedback about what was the right way to move it forward. And turns out I was training for management all the way along. Love it. So when you had an org of 40 or 50 people, how did that break down? Did you have managers or did you have like 50 one-on-ones each week? Actually, nobody, I think nobody officially reported to me, but as a practical matter, I was, I was actually leading all the work. And yeah, there were a bunch of, there were a bunch of sub teams at that point. That makes sense. And did you get any like training or support from eBay? As you said, you'd been training for 20 years on one aspect of it, which is influencing people to do something without necessarily having direct authority. But there are other elements to management, right? Thinking about the people, making sure that they're uh, working at a sustainable pace, thinking about career development. Were were you even like dealing with those things? Because I I remember teams I've run where I didn't care about that because I just had to ship code and get them to do it with me. But I think these days people think a lot more about sustainable management and not burning out your team and thinking about their career goals. Did you do those things? And if so, how did you learn about them? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I learned more about those things at subsequent uh, roles. But I would say I learned from some of the best um, at eBay. So the person that I reported to is a guy named Hugh Williams, uh, amazing search engine expert and um, went on to uh, do great things at Pivotal and Google and other things. Um, and he was a great uh, mentor and inspiration for me about what it really meant to be an amazing technologist and also a really, to your point, kind of caring leader um, that really you know, cared about finding great people and making sure there were interesting problems to work on, but also making sure people were continuing to do things at a sustainable pace. So he was a great, he was a great uh, uh, mentor and inspiration for me. Nice. And then, so after eBay, you had a brief stint as a founder, and then you moved to Google as a director of engineering. What was the difference between building and managing teams at Google versus being at eBay? The principles were the same, but the actuality was different, I suppose. So at Google, I sort of, I came in and I inherited an existing organization. Uh, so I, I was the engineering director for Google App Engine. So that was, was and is Google's platform as a service. And uh, that was an existing uh, set of teams. Um, and then, you know, we helped to grow it. Um, more over the time that I was there. Things that I learned about Google uh, at Google was way more um, independence and autonomy of the individual team. So something that was has always been a great uh, power behind the Google culture. And then similar to Amazon and Netflix and other really high performing places is how individual teams were themselves given a lot of autonomy. So, you know, we talk about full stack teams that have all the skill sets that they need to get the job done. Um, And then they have their own sets of goals. So, you know, Google's, I guess it's now 50,000 engineers. They don't behave like one 50,000 person company. They behave more like 10,000 five person companies, you know, where the output of that company is often the input to one of the other companies that, you know, in quotes, one of the other teams at Google. So yeah, I I learned a lot about how to how to manage really high performing teams there because there was a culture of high performance and a culture of autonomy and accountability for the individual teams. 
Interesting. And then after the director of engineering role at Google, you moved on to VP of engineering roles at Stitch Fix and WeWork. What were some of the differences moving from the director role to, to the VPE position? Yeah, I actually wouldn't. Uh, there were a bunch of differences. I wouldn't characterize them as director versus VP. I mean, a director at Google is a VP at most other places. <laughs> That's fair, yeah. So when I was there, it's maybe different now. When I was there, the person scope of a director went all the way from 100 or 150 at the low end, all the way to 800 or so at the high end. So it was a, it was a same scale organization. When I joined Stitch Fix, though, um, it was more of a a growth story and more of a scaling from, you know, a small thing to a much larger thing. So when I joined, there were 25 engineers. Um, and then two years later, by the time I left, we had 125 engineers. So a 5x growth over two years, um, which we're actually able to do really uh, surprisingly sustainably. Um, but again, it was the take a team or set of a, a small number of teams and grow it so that the you know, we're producing hopefully with five times more people, five times more customer value. Um, and the trick there, uh, one of the tricks there is to think about growing the organization fractally. And what I mean by that is when you start out as a start, like before I was there, it was a startup with only a handful of engineers where there was essentially one team, Right. And then over time, there are more problems that we need to be solved. And we subdivide that one team into maybe two teams or three teams. And just like um, cells in biology, just like cellular mitosis, you, you know, split the team in two, maybe or three, and then you split, you split those teams and split those teams and so on. So maybe one of the main ways that we made that 5x growth over two years sustainable was that's how we, we grew it. it wasn't that we grew everything 5x, if that makes sense. We just had a, let's make this, make it, making this up, five teams of five, and then we ultimately had 25 teams of five kind of thing. Got it. Did you also notice just the, the breadth of things you needed to think about was greater in terms of, presumably at Google, you didn't have to think about how do we go around about hiring people? You had the hiring councils and a structure for that. Did you find that there were more things you had to kind of consider and, and build from scratch versus being part of a larger engineering org? Yeah, that's a really insightful question. And that was actually part of the fun of it at Stitch Fix was, and, you, and exactly attracting and hiring talent. That was something that I probably spent a third of my time on, maybe more. Um, that's a huge, uh, a huge investment on the part of every engineering leader in my, in my opinion. Um, also we were in the transition phase where you add a career ladder because, um, somewhere in that, you know, 25, 50, 100 size of company, people start to, you know, when, when it's a startup, people are like, okay, I work at the startup. And then ultimately are like, well, Hey, this is going to be a significant part of my career. I want to make sure that I'm able to grow. What does that mean? And so lots of companies go through this uh, period where they need to think very carefully and write down, well, what does it mean to be a high-performing engineer at Stitch Fix, at WeWork, at whatever? And so that was a great opportunity to be able to, I guess I'll say, assemble from inspirations from not just by myself, but like for me, I brought Google and eBay inspirations. Other people brought uh, inspirations from other places that they'd worked and we sort of crafted our own model there. 
Um, and then again, back to your earlier point, uh, go, go, go. Well, as you get into a more mature phase of the company, you absolutely have to think about like a long-term sustainability of the people and the teams and the business. And that's, again, a fun part. Nice. I love it. Now, last year, you gave a talk at one of the, actually, I think, multiple CTO summits. Thank you so much. Uh, and you were talking about breaking codes, designing jets, and building teams, a, a little bit of history of engineering going back even before 2000. Who knew there was like engineering before the last 20 years? Uh, and I think you're talking about a, a few organizations like Bletchley Park, uh, Lockheed Skunkworks, Xerox Park. Uh, I'd love if you could just take a little bit of time for the listeners who weren't in the room and maybe tell us, like, for example, what's Bletchley Park got to do with engineering teams today? Yeah, thanks. Yeah, that was a really fun set of research and then uh, talk that I that I put together because I love I, I just for me, it was fun. All those stories of engineering history and we'll tell some of them now. Um, but the hook or the motivation for the talk was hey, all these newfangled millennial ideas that we have around agile and lean, all these things, the words are new, but the concepts are old. And they're not just old like 10 years old. They're old like 80 years old. And so uh, it was actually in my side personal fun reading where I like reading about all these things where it just suddenly occurred to me that all these things were connected. And the the minor little fun personal thing is I have a now 13 year old son who loves aviation. And so I bought the, a book about skunk works. We'll talk about this, but like skunk works is where Lockheed built the fastest, highest flying, stealthiest aircraft for decade after decade after decade. Um, and I bought this book about skunk works for him. And then he started telling me, Oh, well, this is, isn't it interesting how skunk, you know, the skunk works uh, was organized and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, Oh my God, that's DevOps. And then it immediately occurred to me, oh, yeah, and that's the same thing for Bletchley Park, and that's the same thing for Xerox Park. So, okay, so Bletchley Park um, was the place in the uh, British military where they broke the German codes. So it was a secret place. Only We only learned about it outside in the early 1970s. Um, so there was a first set of revelations in the early 1970s, and then another set of revelations around the year 2000. Um, so Bletchley Park was the, again, the British government's efforts during World War II to break the German Enigma code, which is what they use to communicate uh, basically all the communication traffic between the different Army, Navy, Air Force divisions of the German military. And then they also broke, we learned in 2000, they also broke uh, the Lawrence cipher, which was another even fancier code that Hitler used directly to communicate with the generals. And so both of those were broken uh, over many years at Bletchley Park. So Alan Turing, which many of the listeners will be familiar with because he is a great uh, founder of our industry way back in 1936 when he wrote a book on or wrote a, a paper on um, what we now call the Turing machine. Um and he was a part of that um, code-breaking team. Um, and But it actually, overall, there were, uh, at its peak, I think there were something like 10,000 uh, people that were working at Bletchley Park in all the aspects of intercepting the wireless messages, trying to decipher the code of the day, decoding the messages, cataloging them, disseminating the information back to Churchill and the headquarters, et cetera. 
And so you're asking what in the world is, I mean, those are super fascinating stories just on their own. What do they have to teach us uh, in the modern world? Well, I mean, one thing is that um, the organizational structure of Bletchley Park was incredibly modern. So everything, everything, all the work that was done there was basically individual autonomous teams that were working on their own particular areas. And then they had almost an event driven way of like, passing literally secretly through this little tunnel from one of the huts, they called them, you know, they did to the decode and then they would, you know, run through this uh, secret tunnel. So nobody knew what the other people were doing uh, their decodes over to the next thing where they would, you know, do the next set of things. So they had this pipeline or um, event driven approach between these individual I'm using quotes services. Uh, So very modern in that sense but also very modern in the sense that it was a learning organization. So they had a um, like essentially a suggestion box where anybody at any level of the organization could make uh, suggestions on how they would improve. uh, They could improve the methods. And then um, one of the leaders, a guy named Max Newman uh, also instituted these, uh, what did he call them? Research sabbaticals where every two weeks he would take a few of his, top performing people out and have them just simply think about what are ways we could be more efficient about decoding these things. And um, all this stuff was, you know, very stressful and during wartime. But what I love is they realized that in order, even in this very stressful situation, the way to get things done was this very non-hierarchical, highly autonomous learning organization. Like that was the way to do this work that was literally going to save Britain and win the war. Nice. And then as we move on through time, so there's the Bletchley Park experience. Then you you talked a little bit about the Lockheed Skunk Works. What was going on there? And again, how, how does it relate? Yeah. So um, again, Lockheed Skunk Works is, um, was Lockheed's advanced development uh, arm. And starting um, in the late 40s, so starting also during World War II, but through the 50s, 60s, 70s, into the 80s, they built uh, some of the world's fastest, highest flying and stealthiest aircraft. So they built um, essentially the war horse, the workhorse of the American um, Air Force in World War II called the P-38 Lightning. Like tens of thousands of them were produced, every theater of war. Um, they, that team also produced the U-2 spy plane. They produced the SR-71 Blackbird, another uh, reconnaissance aircraft that is still was built starting in the early 1960s. It's still the fastest and highest flying aircraft ever built more than 50 years, almost almost 70 years ago or uh, 60 years ago. Can't do my math. Um, so incredibly, incredible engineering efforts. Um, they also invented stealth technology. So. Uh, one of the guys was reading a paper by this some obscure Soviet radi- uh, radar expert and realized that he could design an aircraft that would be essentially invisible to radar. And so they developed that technology starting in the 1970s, released to production in the in the early 1980s. Um, and so all of stealth technology sort of derives from there. And again, hugely interesting and very modern approaches to organization. So the guy who ran this, the original um, uh, leader of the Skunk Works is a guy named Kelly Johnson, famous in aviation. And his idea was 
straight up DevOps. So his idea was you should never have the the designer of an air of a airplane more than 50 feet away from the person who was manufacturing it. So they essentially had one facility um, where the people that were just, you know, people were designing the aircraft, the people were manufacturing it, people were maintaining it. So, you know, hu- uh, huge uh, ability to keep the cycle time or the, the feedback loop really, really tight. And then he also, or they also instituted, you know, they would build wooden, you know, in the stealth development, they built wooden mock-ups to make sure that the stealth ideas would work. Then they did computational simulation. Then they built larger and larger um, uh, flyable aircraft. And they would, again, part of his deal was they had to be able to do the test pilot work within Skunk Works, you know, because they didn't want to produce something, hand it off to the military, and then months later find out what happened. Um, so there was there was all everything was designed around these really tight feedback loops between design and development and operations essentially. And people who are sort of students of the agile and lean methodologies will have heard of W. Edwards Deming, who brought to Toyota, uh, later became the Toyota production method, but brought to Toyota these ideas about um, how to do lean manufacturing. Well, it turns out one of the main inspirations for Deming was Skunkworks. So there's this a very direct line to exactly the lean uh, technology, lean approaches to technology that we do in software today, a direct line back to Skunkworks. Wow. And then as we move even further, further forward, there was the Xerox uh, Palo Alto Research Lab, right? Xerox Park, which I, I think most people have probably heard of. What were some of the, the things that, that you, you noticed when you were researching Park? Yeah. So just to as a reminder for maybe most, but Xerox Palo Alto Research Center, or PARC, P-A-R-C, was a Xerox research lab um, that started in the early 1970s. Um, and they had the goal to build a personal computer. So, and by the way, let's remember the date we're talking about. This is 10 years before the IBM PC. So even the idea of a personal computer was insane at that at that moment like nobody had that idea every computer at the time when they started was a big you know refrigerator or room sized thing that maybe 10 or 100 people would use in a timeshare way so this idea of each individual person having a computer to themselves was um was really out there science fiction and they invented by the way um so they invented along the way to inventing the personal computer they invented the graphical user interface with overlapping windows, like they did it. Um, they invented uh, object-oriented programming with the Smalltalk language. So Alan Kay worked there. Uh, they invented Ethernet, which again is our modern LAN networking protocol still today, Bob Metcalf. Um, they also invented the laser printer. And then they invented uh, WYSIWYG uh, text editing with um, something called Bravo, which Charles Simone later took to Microsoft and became Microsoft Word. And by the way, the Macintosh, all the things that came together in 1984 with the Macintosh, again, graphical user interface, overlapping windows, et cetera, et cetera, all that stuff was directly inspired from a famous demo in 1979 that Steve Jobs uh, was given at Xerox Park. And again, so what, you know, again, what do they, what do those people have to teach us? Well, by the way, they gave us modern computing about 30 years before all these things, you know, became mainstream. But also, again, a very modern approach to organizational culture. So more, way more a mixture of 
academic and industry than had had been seen in the past. Um, so again, small teams of really top-notch people, they would form themselves around a problem and, uh, and then, you know, get some work done and, you know, then disperse and go do something else. Um, but like a really interesting, uh, really modern approach to, uh, to producing software. Nice. So I remember when you gave the talk, you pulled out four big themes that you saw uh, across Bletchley Park, Lockheed Skunk Works and Xerox Park that were consistent and relevant to modern engineering. For the listeners, would you mind running them through? What were the, the four big takeaways from, from looking at these, these kind of centers of excellence? The four things that really struck me across all these different great engineering stories were a purpose. Each one of these places had this big purpose, right? Bletchley Park needed to win a war, uh, say, you know, save a country. Um, Lockheed Skunk Works wanted to build amazing aircraft that no one had built before. Xerox Park wanted to build this crazy idea of the personal computer. So they had this huge, this big purpose that everybody could rally around. And then they had a laser focus on doing whatever it took to, you know, move forward into that goal. So the purpose was one idea. The second, which I've highlighted through most of this conversation, is the organizational culture. So small teams, well-defined areas of responsibility, what we would now call full-stack teams, and give those teams lots, uh, give those teams a goal, but lots of autonomy on how to get the goal, get to the goal. Um, the third thing is um, building teams out of diverse people. So um, Bletchley Park. At its peak of 10,000 people, 75% of them were women. So the most important, probably most important thing, you know, work that the British military was doing to win the war, uh, 75% of the contributors were women. And they contributed at all levels, including um, including code breaking and really advanced stuff. Um, so a great argument for building uh, building diverse teams. At, uh, at the Skunk Works... Mary G. Ross was one of it was the very first Native American female engineer. She was a complete badass, one of the original 40 Skunk Works engineers. She worked on that P-38 Lightning and solved some mathematical problems that none of the men could solve. So this is like anybody who's seen hidden figures, it was like that. So there were she wasn't doing stuff on computers. She worked by hand doing, you know, differential equations for days and days and days and tried to figure out how they could work around or how they could deal with the compression of the airframe of the airframe of the P-38. Cause it was going so fast. It would, um, wasn't supersonic, but it was going so fast that the airframe would, it was compressing and they needed to figure out how it would compress so they could design the materials correctly and design the air, uh, airframe. And she was the only one after days of hand calculations that could figure it out. And she went on to build, uh, rockets and missiles. Uh, most of the stuff she's done is um, still classified, actually. So her Wikipedia page is pretty thin, but not because she didn't do a lot, but because the stuff she was doing was so uh, so amazing. And so a bunch of her work directly contributed to the Apollo project and um, a bunch of rockets and satellites. And then uh, last but very much not least, in terms of diversity, the Xerox Park experience. So a hugely... Um, hugely diverse set of people from all uh all walks of life um and the woman who gave the um that famous demo to steve jobs under great protest um adele goldberg was one of the uh, main people there 
Um, she was a co-developer with Alan Kay of Smalltalk. Uh, she introduced um, something that she called design templates, which we would now call design patterns, uh, went on to lead the ACM, the Association of Computing Machinery. So huge, uh, huge figure in the industry. Yeah. So then the fine, so that was diversity and diverse teams. Um, and the last thing is just this thread of engineering excellence, where all of these places were really all about producing really great engineering and everything was sort of um, organized around that. Nice. Well, Randy, thank you so much for taking the time both to speak a little bit about your personal history and a little bit about the history of engineering. Fascinating stuff. Thanks. It was a lot of fun. This episode was produced by the amazing team over at Dante32, a podcast production agency focusing on content strategy, audio production, and distribution. Check them out at Dante32.com. And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, please subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps others to find the show. Thank you.